Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, my name is Kayon. This is my first rave. I'm new here. Oh, well, happy birthday, Diane. No, 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 no. I said first rave, and my name is Kayon. Dude, that's profound. Your name is your own. No, I never mind. You want to buy some Molly? For real? That's great, because I'm going to start decking my halls, like, right after Thanksgiving. How much you want? I'm going to need at least ten boughs. I have two halls, and I figure I'll deck them with at least five boughs in each. Can you help me carry it out to the car, too? Carry what out? The holly. I said molly. Noggy? You mean, like, eggnoggy? Wow, people at raves really get a jump on the holidays. I'm surprised. Dude. Never mind. What? It might take a while to get this straightened out, so here's a show about the risks and occasional rewards of the drug called MDMA. And now the guy who does the whole show on X, that's Extra Strength Ricola Cough Drops, Colin McEnroe. At my age, that's the strongest thing I let myself have. We are going to be talking. We're going to be talking really about two things in a way, or, or maybe even a larger field of things. But as we begin this show, we have to talk about two things. One of them is the actual the drug MDMA, uh, sometimes known as ecstasy or, or Molly. Uh, we also have to talk about the things that people take, thinking that they're taking MDMA, which is kind of a different thing. Uh, and there are uh, risks to both, but the risks uh, in the latter case are severe. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about sort of what will happen down the road on this show, and then I'll tell you about about what. It's going to happen right now. In the second segment, we're going to be talking to Brad Burge. He's Director of Communications at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. Uh, we're going to be talking in that segment with him, also John Halpern, who you'll meet in the first segment, uh, about some of the clinical uses of, of MDMA, the sort of ways in which MDMA has been uh, used or experimented with in the past for medical good, basically. Sam Tracy, also the Chairman of the Board for Students for a Sensible Drug Policy in Washington, D.C., will join us in the final segment because there's no way, I think, to unthread a conversation about Molly or ecstasy from this incredibly popular, some would say the most dominant uh, music form in pop music at the moment, EDM. Uh, no way to unthread those two things. I mean, th- there is a sort of a notion within that world that the two kind of are, are, are almost inseparable for some people. We're going to talk about whether that's true or not, and we're going to talk to Tommy Sunshine, one of the leading practitioners of EDM. He's a music producer, journalist, and D- DJ, uh, and he's right at the heart of EDM. That'll be the final segment. Here's the first segment, though. We wanted to sort of explain what it is we're talking about, because for a lot of you out there, uh, this is all terra incognita. First of all, also let me say, uh, if you have questions as we go along, if you have comments, uh, if you've used the drug itself and you want to say something, tweet us at WNPR Colin. We're going to begin with Michael White. He is uh, here in the studio with me. He's a professor and department head at UConn's School of Pharmacy. And as we go along, I'm going to add Dr. John Halpern uh, from uh, Harvard Medical School and uh, from the uh, Laboratory for Integrative Psychiatry at Boston's McLean Hospital into this mix. Actually, I think it's in Belmont. But anyway, uh, in, into this mix. But we'll start with uh, Michael White here. B- we do have to have two conversations. One of them is about MDMA, and the other one is about the stuff that uh, you buy thinking it's MDMA. And uh, Dr. Halpern will be very useful, I think, to us in that latter case. But get us started with MDMA. First of all, this is actually not a brand new drug, right? It's been around for a long time. Been around very uh, uh, for a very long time. You know, if you go back to the 1980s, there was a very high use of the product 
uh, it started to wane over the 90s and in the early 2000s before making a, a very dramatic comeback uh, as Molly. It used to be uh, mostly um, referred to as ecstasy, mm-hmm. and that was a big 19, uh, uh, 1980s thing. So, you know, what it really is, is it's a, it's a form of amphetamine, but what they did is they did some chemical modifications of the amphetamine molecule in order to give it some of these hallucinogenic properties that people seem to, uh, you know, to really like during raves. They said that, you know, it can make them feel the music more, uh, you know, gives them uh, different visual cues, um, you know, brighter lights, more vibrant colors, and, and, and a greater overall experience. And then this general overall feeling of, uh, of more empathy and, uh, uh, and love than they, usual, than they usually have. I have a crude understanding of what an amphetamine is. This seems like quite a bit more than that, too, right? We're we're activating some systems that an amphetamine typically doesn't do to neurochemically. That's right. You know, so amphetamines are uh, are really good at making you feel like you have more energy and uh, you know increasing things like adrenaline and uh, a different type of uh, of adrenaline that your body makes also uh, noradrenaline. And so you know that gives you a lot of a uh, a feeling of having more pep, having more energy. And um, this one, uh, you know, based on the chemical modifications that they did, also has you put out lots and lots of serotonin. So, you know, people who have uh, clinical depression, if they're put on a drug like Prozac, put on a drug like Zocor, those are select serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and they increase serotonin. This product also uh, increases serotonin, and then it also increases dopamine concentrations. And dopamine concentrations uh, help give people, uh, you know, certain good uh, general feelings. And a number of uh, of products of abuse end up going through the dopamine type of system also. And then it has this, uh, uh, this very strange um, hormonal effect also on uh, something called oxytocin. And the oxytocin is, is thought to give you that increased empathetic feeling when you're taking it. Oxytocin is sometimes called the cuddling hormone or something like that. This is associated with everything from sex to hugging. And in some ways, this sounds – one of my issues with ecstasy or MDMA all the time is – I mean, I'm 59 years old and I, I lead an unexciting life. But it sounds really fun. <laughs> it sounds really great. The way that you just described it, it, sound, it sounds as neurochemically terrific as something could possibly be. I'm going to get an amphetamine buzz that's going to you know, make me feel like I've got some energy and, and I'll be kinetic. And I'm going to get oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. That's pretty much the triple crown of really fun you know, chemicals in your body that make you feel really, really good. So why isn't it in the drinking water? I mean, why, like, why can't I buy it in breakfast cereal? Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the uh, advantages, especially for younger people, before we talk about some of the uh, some of the dangers. One of the advantages is that it's relatively inexpensive. You can get it for around uh, ten dollars, and the effect lasts for several hours. So, uh, you know, if you compare that to uh, trying to get an alcohol buzz, you know, that can be much more uh, can be much more expensive. The second thing is that if you go to a rave and your parents uh, don't know that you're drinking alcohol, when you get in the car, they're going to know that you're drinking alcohol because you smell like alcohol. It's on your breath. If you take marijuana, they're going to know that you do because they can smell it on you. Molly is uh, is odorless. Right. Molly is uh, is tasteless and it only costs around ten dollars. So it's, it's easy to hide. Um, because it comes in a tablet form. You know, if you see somebody, uh, you know, if your son or daughter walks around or you're going through their room and you find out that they have a bong, you know that uh, they're doing something that's, uh, that's illegal. But if they go to a party, they have $10 with them, they use the $10 to buy a single tablet, the evidence is gone before they 
leave. To get in a car with a bottle of water, a pacifier, and a glow stick, you might have some idea. But uh, but I take your point. It's a, it's a much uh, easier. And now we're going to add Dr. Halpern in just a second and also talk about sort of all the other things that I might be getting if I took MDMA. But let's say I was fortunate enough to take MDMA uh, and really get it, get the actual molecule itself. By the way, the reason it's called molly is short for molecule. Let's say I get the real molecule itself and I don't get a lot of other bad stuff. I don't get dog heartworm medication and all kinds of other stuff that it could be cut with. And, and I also get a reasonable dose. I don't, ex- you know, I don't, I don't exceed the what we, we would understand as kind of a general safety envelope uh, for, for taking the drug. Would there still be risks? What would be the sort of risks to me, to my body? Yeah, so in normal doses, the risks are in healthy young people are generally pretty low based on the number of people that have uh, that have used it and then the adverse effects that uh, that they have. But there are a number of issues, especially for select people. So because it's an amphetamine, you have a lot of potential for adverse effects. It causes the heart rate to race. It causes increased stress on the heart. It increases blood pressure. So uh, there are a number of people that walk around that uh, that have you know genetic issues and congenital issues where they're having uh, you know congenital heart diseases that they don't recognize. And then when you stress them with some of these uh, with some of these things, you increase the risk of having a stroke. You increase the risk of having a heart attack, or more importantly, you increase the risk of them having a heart arrhythmia. And, you know, that can be very problematic. Another thing that the drug does is it increases your metabolic rate. And by increasing the metabolic rate, it can increase your internal body temperature. So when you combine that with being at a rave and you're packed in with a bunch of other people, you're dancing, you feel like you have limitless energy, that can also increase your metabolic rate. So in some cases, some people have increased their body temperature so much that they begin to break down the proteins in their muscle and then they leach out the things that are inside the muscle, and one of those things is myoglobin. Now, myoglobin is very much like hemoglobin, except it's in your muscle rather than in your blood, and it has a lot of iron in it. All of that iron can rush into your kidneys if you have this severe muscle breakdown called rhabdomyolysis, and it can end up damaging your kidneys also. Okay, you're um, talking me out of this uh, really fast. So the umbrella term also is hyperthermia, right? You that's right. The temperature up around 107 degrees, you're really in quite a bit of danger. Uh, the other thing you're doing is drinking a lot of water, and apparently you can drink too much water too. There is such a thing as that, right? That's right. It, it not only makes you thirsty, but it also increases the release of, uh, of this other hormone, antidiuretic hormone, that causes you to retain a lot of fluid. So you're feeling really hot. You want to drink a lot of water because you don't want to get overheated, but you can end up diluting something that's in your blood, uh, which is sodium, and you need to have a normal concentration or else you can run into issues there. And, you know, the early adverse effects of having too low blood sodium is that you feel mental confusion, you feel altered mental states, and that's what you're taking the drug for also. So that's very hard to tease out until you have a severe drop in, potass- or in, uh, in sodium and then you're at risk of dying. All right. We're talking to Michael White. He's a professor and a department head at UConn's School of Pharmacy. Let's add to the conversation uh, Dr. John Halpern, as I said before, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and director of the Laboratory for Integrative Psychiatry at McLean Hospital. Uh, d- does a lot of research uh, into uh, psychedelics and, and and to the effects of these kinds of drugs on people. Dr. Halpern, you've been listening to our conversation so far, but uh, as I said, we're really talking about two drugs here. We're talking about MDMA. Uh, if you are lucky enough to get it, I guess lucky is sort of a word with quotes around it, or the thing that you buy thinking you're getting, MDMA or Molly or ecstasy, which probably, I mean, the odds are very high that that I'm, if I do this, if I go out and make a purchase like this, I'm either going to get no MDMA at all or a little bit of MDMA and a bunch of other stuff. Can you say a little bit more about that for us? 
Sure. Thank you for having me uh, this afternoon. Well, about that question, it's true. In the United States, there's a, uh, a good chance that the MDMA won't be in an actual pill that's purchased. Some estimates are that one out of five pills contain no MDMA at all. So you get a variety of other substances in there from methamphetamine to cough syrup to caffeine to weird uh, analogs that have been used, you know, have been exposed to humans even less. And that's in contrast to Europe where there's a much greater chance that the pill will be, uh, though illicitly manufactured, uh, will be pure. I've never heard of a single pill of MDMA, by the way, being sold for just $10. It's probably too low. And just a few things to clean up here. MDMA is not tasteless. It, it, people will describe a very yucky taste in their mouths uh, from it. And while I agree that uh, the risks are magnified uh, in, uh, when it's taken in an illegal setting, where you, you, know, you don't know the safe parameters for its use, that's quite different from what happens in the laboratory, where nobody's actually been harmed from, from taking MDMA. Um, many of the things that are described as risks, which I think were very well described, can be managed with proper preparation and, and awareness. I mean, you're concerned about electrolyte uh, imbalance, uh, low sodium. Gee, somebody could just drink a, a bottle of Gatorade. There, solved. But don't drink too much, which people will sometimes do, and that causes polydipsia, which can prove lethal. About three gallons of water could, could make you so, your blood so diluted that you'll, that you'll die. But the issues of overheating and um, the breakdown of muscles, this can happen for all sorts of activities. I mean, you have thousands of people going to the emergency room every year from cheerleading accidents. You've got thousands of people damaging their livers from, from Tylenol taken in the wrong amount or, or taken in combination with alcohol. Several hundred people a year die and a few thousand wind up needing to have liver transplants. But we don't say that this is a highly dangerous drug and we remove it from market because there's a, there's a long list of side effects and risks from the drug. I, I mean, we even say, you know, is there a safe way? You know, what drug is safe? There is no drug that's 100% safe. And the only people that say things like people think that club drugs are safe seem to be people in, you know, on the enforcement side or parents. I've never interviewed a single drug user ever saying that they think what they're putting in their body is 100% safe. Well, you, you raise an interesting point. You know, as I said before, I'm 59 years old. I take a statin. I'm actually looking for something that's really, really fun and not at all dangerous. But what you're saying is that that's not necessarily in the mentality uh, of somebody attending a rave, somebody uh, going to a club. Uh, they're not necessarily looking for something that's uh, really, really fun and not the least bit dangerous. The notion of danger uh, is, is not necessarily uh, a complete disqualifier or even a complete turnoff. That's right. People make informed decisions all the time. People, again, like it's athletic pursuits. You, you risk broken bones and, and brain trauma, and people still engage in it because they, make it, they give themselves an informed consent. And you've got a lot of people who are using hallucinogens, though, yes, they are illegal and placed in Schedule 1, which means they're the most restrictive with no proved medical use or confirmed safe pattern of use. But people go online and they read about it. They go to Arrowhead and they read all these case reports of where people are saying that they got hurt or not. But with these ecstasy overdoses of late, this wave of them that happened, it seems like, for example, yeah, we have people, some people that had an underlying probably cardiac condition that wasn't diagnosed and or they took like 10 pills. You know, who does that? 
Let me pause you there, though. Okay, so one of the reasons we're having this conversation, obviously, is that there have been a lot of highly publicized deaths from either this drug or what people thought were thought was the drug. And in some cases, you know, these electric, these EDM festivals, uh, uh, in the case uh, of the Electric Zoo, it, had, it was shut down a day early uh, because of these these sudden deaths. And and this is a little bit different from some of the other. I mean, it, it, to me anyway, as um, an uninformed outsider looking and reading about this stuff anecdotally, I feel like yeah, the closest thing I can think of is uh, some of the highly publicized deaths of of athletes who 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 might have used cocaine or something like that and had an underlying cardiac condition that they didn't know about. But I don't really know how to evaluate what I'm seeing right here. I'm seeing. I feel like I'm reading about young people who appear to be healthy who who take a drug and and maybe they don't know how much of it to take or maybe they don't know what they're taking. Taking, and they drop dead. They drop dead right in front of paramedics. They drop dead, you know, right in the middle of, of having a really great time. They drop dead while they're dancing. This is sort of something I'm not all that familiar with, even having being a baby boomer and growing up during a, a certain kind of drug culture. So, John Halpern, I, I'm sure you don't want to minimize anyway the incredible danger of this. How do you balance this against the other stuff that you're saying about the essential safety of the drug under under clinical conditions? Well, it's completely different. I mean, one thing's manufactured under good manufacturing uh, practices with a pure substance that's taken under controlled conditions where you can measure um, heart rate and pulse and, and core body temperature, and we're not having them dance to electronic music that has them hopping around at 150 beats a minute that gets them um, overheated anyway. So it's, uh, it can be safely administered in, in that setting. Just like look at OxyContin, a Schedule II um, opiate. At one point, there was about an estimated half a million Americans addicted to it. I mean, if it came up to the street, OxyContin never would have been a prescribed medication. But I'll tell you, if you have uh, intractable pain from bone cancer and I have the option of giving you OxyContin, you know, you're going to be really glad that I have that in my doctor's bag to offer you. So when you have a drug with no approved, no known medical uses, any risk is then too much in the in the in that equation of risk of, of evaluating risks versus benefits but there are um, when there are proper indications th- these things can be informed to a patient the fact is is the brain changes in from like neurological pruning that occurs from from exposure to MDMA animal data shows that post exposure to uh, an SSRI antidepressant in animal models appears to be uh, neuroprotective the fact is is that those brain changes are the exact same as what occurs from the drug fenfluramine, which was approved with that knowledge that it causes that very same change that MDMA appears to do um, by the FDA. It was withdrawn from market because uh, chronic uh, daily exposure caused reversible uh, changes to um, heart valves, and, um, and that's where the fen-fen thing happened, and people got hurt from it. But even right. there, it was reversible. Okay, and I want to go problem. back to MDMA here for a second, uh, Dr. Halpern. Let me just go back to Dr. White for a second. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, we're talking about uh, something, I, I, I have to sort of uh, frame this the right way. You were describing a situation where this drug can be dangerous, and, and it's dangerous in a situation. It seems to me that what you described is, in terms of the dangers of the drug, you're describing probably 95% of the way that it's used. In other words, 95%. It's dangerous if you take it, take it. You don't know how much you're taking. You're dancing a lot. You're in a hot, crowded situation. You're drinking a lot of water. Those are the circumstances under which it's dangerous. But I assume that's 95% of the time exactly the way this drug is used. That's right. And, so, and there's two other things that, that's very important. So in people who are young and healthy, there are still two other risks. One of the problems of being very empathetic 
is that uh, when you're out in public, people can take advantage of how empathetic you are. And you may put yourself into situations that you wouldn't put yourself in otherwise. Robberies, sexual assaults, going with people that you shouldn't be going with because you trust them like you wouldn't have trusted them in a different situation is very, very scary and uh, and dangerous. And there are a lot of people who know about, you know, some of the adverse effects of the drugs and, you know, they are making informed decisions. But there's also a bunch of people who are going out that are seeing other people taking the drug and they're making a snap decision about taking it and the other people don't seem like they're having problems. It seems like they're having a, uh, a great time and they want to have that great time also. And then the second risk is this. You get the euphoria that you have at the time that you take it over the next several hours. But it isn't that the serotonin and the dopamine is coming from nowhere. And since you're using it, what usually happens is that you undergo a period of time after you take it and you get that euphoria where you're a little under where you usually are until you can end up restocking some of the concentrations of, of those products also. So, you know, one common phenomenon that, uh, that I hear about people who are using MDMA is that they'll get a Saturday euphoria, but they'll know that they'll feel down through Tuesday and Wednesday. And we already know that, uh, you know, come Wednesday, it's a hard day to get through anyway. Mm. So if you're having the downers on Tuesdays and, uh, and Wednesdays that are chemically induced, it can do two things for you. One of the things is it can make you look forward to the weekend when you can feel that euphoric rush again. And it could make you want to increase the dose the next time so that the euphoria will last a longer period of time. And that's problematic with this drug because increasing the dose uh, doesn't give you a standard dose-related, you double the dose, you get double the effect sort of thing. You get less and less incremental benefits as you take more and more of the product. So if you really wanted to, uh, uh, to get that euphoria that you used to have several months ago before you started becoming a chronic user, maybe you would take six or seven or eight because you don't understand the dose-related effects and how to take the drug properly. All right, we I got think it. we need to just uh, go back a second here to bring this to some reality here. All of those risks that were just described... Where are both of you with the number of people dying every year from alcohol? There's 80,000 Americans dying every year from excessive alcohol use. They're getting manipulated, taken advantage of, all these things. But we don't hear um, this with ecstasy. We hear, uh, you know, in those numbers, not, not, not even, not, you know, we're talking about less than 10 to 20,000 Americans every year showing up in an emergency room where MDMA plays a role. Those, the state is from the CDC and from the government. But with alcohol, it, it's devastating. It does all of those things that you just heard um, labeled with, uh, with ecstasy from being taken advantage too much, uh, overdose, taking, uh, you know, and, and when it comes to the emotional after effects of ecstasy, the best data that I have, which is from research that's been completed, is that, that people who are prone to psychiatric Ill- illness because they have a history of it or it's in their primary relatives, those are the ones that seem to um, have the greatest incidence of having post-use blues. But... I just want to go back to the. I want to go back to the. I want to go back to the alcohol thing for a second. I mean, I I just. I have to say, I feel like that's the most rhetorically and intellectually tired argument uh, about substances that there that there is in this century. And you know that obviously alcohol has caused all kinds of human misery. I I don't. I never understand why that's an argument on behalf of something else. You know why anyone would say, well, because of alcohol, you know, we should take the the problems associated with this other drug less seriously. I I I I I never understand why. People that. bring that up. I can help explain that. That's because 
there's an importance in a public health message where we're trying to save as many people as possible from hurting themselves. And it's, it's essential to point out which drugs um, appear to have the highest risks for morbidity and mortality. And MDMA is not in that top-tier category. So we have only so much time we can try to uh, win over hearts and minds of people who are going to say, yes, I'm going to still use despite all these risks. And some drug, you know, a drug is not a drug is not a drug. Some are more dangerous than others. And to just scream about the harms from a drug that are possible without understanding how rare it is for people to actually have those risks visited upon them, I think we wind up missing the boat. We wind up uh, losing our target audience. It may feel good for parents and uh, people um, you know, leaders in the community, because, you know, in the absence of fact, fear can reign. Life is precious. We, we don't want to see people get hurt. But you destroy that public health message when you scream about harms as if it's the most dangerous drug when people who are actually using um, experience something else amongst themselves and their community of users. All right. We'll come back to this. We've got to take a quick break here. i got producers who are really worried about how long this has went. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Uh, that's John Halpern, Dr. Michael White uh, with me in studio. Uh, he's a head of UConn's uh, department head at UConn School of Pharmacy. We'll be back after this. So we're back. We're talking about MDMA um, uh, in studio with me, Dr. Michael White, professor and uh, department head at UConn School of Pharmacy. We're going to talk to Brad Burge from uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies in just a second. Sam Tracy, uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy in Washington. But um, Michael White, while, while we're here, while we're sort of finishing up the conversation with John Halpern. So, I mean, the, the leap from some of the stuff that he's saying is... I think, well, this has some interesting clinical uses. We'll talk uh, about those in this segment. But also, uh, if you want to make a drug dangerous, drive it underground. Then you have sort of a situation where people are buying stuff and they don't know what it is. They don't know what the right dosage is. Um, it's, you know, uh, they can't look at the label. They can't uh, ask their pharmacist. And so even if they're getting MDMA, they may be taking it dangerously or using it dangerously. If they're buying something they think is MDMA and they're, and they're not getting that, it's even more dangerous. Is there an argument for, for putting in a different category, taking it out of Schedule 1? and doing something else with it? I think there's, uh, uh, there's a possibility of doing that. And um, having products that are manufactured under good manufacturing practices that don't contain lead, that contain the same dose from dose to dose, and that aren't tainted with other uh, products is always very, very important. You know, it, just because you had taken it before and you had this effect, you might not be getting anything that's anywhere near the, uh, the same thing. And I think, you know, looking at comparative risks is valuable. And, and, you know, so here's the data that 
that I was able to come up with that in the year 2009, 4% of all emergency room visits were due to to Mali or what people thought were Mali when they ended up coming in. And so that's 4% of ED visits, which is relatively small, but that's a 123% increase over 2004. And so, you know, we don't have uh, uh, or I wasn't able to find national data for emergency room visits, but... Uh, in San Francisco, from 2008 to 2011, emergency room visits went up an additional 30 percent due to uh, Mali use. So, you know, I, I think what's really good about a segment like this is not to overemphasize risks where the risks really don't exist, but to take something that a lot of people don't have a lot of familiarity with and then give them information that they need to have to make more educated choices or to have discussions with their kids so that they can make more educated choices as they go along. All right. We're going to talk to uh, Brad Burge right now. He's, uh, as I said, Director of Communications for the Mul- at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS. Brad Burge, you know, we're talking about this chemical. It really has been around for uh, 100 years and in, in back in the middle of the last century. Uh, the Army was looking at various clin- clinical applications for it. Uh, I know in other countries it's been used to treat uh, uh, PTSD, um, or at least it's been tried uh, as a treatment for PTSD. Tell us a little bit about w- what you know about that, what the actual clinical uses for MDMA might be. Uh, yeah, thanks, Garrett. It's great to be here. Uh, also great to hear the comments from uh, Dr. White and Dr. Halpern. It's been a great discussion so far. As you mentioned, there's been a, a, actually a long history of uh, the clinical and therapeutic uses of MDMA. Uh, we often think of it as first appearing or emerging uh, in this recreational context in the club scene at raves and festivals. Um, but, but in fact, it first uh, came into public awareness as a psychotherapeutic tool. Uh, As you mentioned, the Army did do some experiments with it, looking at it uh, as a mind control or a persuasion tool uh, in the 1950s. Those uh, recently declassified documents uh, um, uh, have shown that. They didn't have much success with it, so they abandoned it. And uh, in the late 1970s, therapists started using it in their practice legally. Uh, to assist with psychotherapy. And uh, some of these very properties, in fact, that uh, uh, Dr. White was just talking about, this this opening up of empathy uh, and this specific activity that MDMA has uh, on the serotonin and dopamine systems actually might uh, be what helped make it a very effective tool for psychotherapy. So before it was, it was criminalized, there was a community of psychotherapists uh, therapists who were working with couples counseling, post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, other, other illnesses and issues um, were, were using MDMA to assist the psychotherapeutic process. Uh, now, this was before it was scheduled, before it emerged into public awareness, and before it caught hold in the media. It wasn't until 1985 that MDMA was emergency scheduled. Yeah, so when we say scheduled, we should say that that refers to the classification of the drug as essentially um, a dangerous drug, a drug that's illegal, uh, that has no approved legal use and poses certain dangers to the public. Yes, that's right. That's right. And and all of the decisions, uh, uh, all of the rationale that the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration used in 1985 to make that decision uh, were based on these uh, reports from uh, recreational use of MDMA. Uh, the testimonials from the therapists and the researchers that were also presented during those hearings were ignored uh, by the justices who made the decision uh, um, or by the administrative law judges that made the decision. So I'm assuming that, uh, just uh, listening to you, that you may 
have a somewhat uh, similar take to, to what many, much of what's been said here today, which is that we have a drug that has some pretty interesting possible applications. Uh, we've made it as dangerous as possible by um, making it a Schedule One drug where, in fact, it's sold unlabeled and often sold in combination with other things that are considerably more dangerous than the drug itself, used by people who don't have a really full understanding of what's happening when they use it. Uh, does MAPS, does your organization take a particular position on all this? Would you like to see it pharmacologically available? Or should I be able to get it uh, at CVS with a prescription? Yes and no. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, we would like to see it much more widely available. We would like to see the creation of safe, uh, safe contexts safe uh, clinical context that is in a doctor's office where the drug could be used with supervision in combination with psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in particular. Um, That's our main area of research that's been opening up a lot right now. We have four uh, ongoing studies right now uh, in the U.S., Israel, and Canada that are uh, looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD. In fact, uh, we, 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 have a, um, we have an ongoing crowdfunding campaign right now called Healing Trauma, uh, which is what we're using to help raise funds and uh, raise awareness for our ongoing study treating veterans uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder that's ongoing right now in South Carolina. Uh, and that study is over halfway complete now, and early results are really promising. Uh, and the goal of this, uh, this, this public education campaign we're doing surrounding this research is, uh, is to motivate military and political leaders to get behind our research and, and show that, and, and, and show that there uh, really are some serious, legitimate therapeutic applications for MDMA and similar drugs when used carefully in clinical therapeutic settings. Um, let, me, let me grab a call right here from V, uh, who I think is curious about this. Hi, V, are you still there? Um, I just wanted to comment on my personal experience with the means, as I call them. Um, I am someone who takes Adderall in conjunction with Wellbutrin and Prozac, and I'm also someone who has been dealing with depression for the last 10 years. And it's affected my life in all sorts of ways, derailed school and all sorts of other things. But when I started using um, the cocktail of drugs that I mentioned, I was lucky enough to have a great psychiatrist who had a very collaborative approach as far as working with me. It was the first time in, it was two years ago, so it was the first time in eight years, like, I woke up feeling like myself. And I've woken up feeling like myself every single day since then. And So uh, to the point of MDMA, does this conversation make you curious about whether something like that could be worked into a protocol like the one you have? curious. I mean, beyond that, I have had several negative experiences with doctors. We've since moved and have had to find new doctors. And it's like as soon as you say the word Adderall or any other drug that ends in an M-I-N-E, mm. <laughs> um, they're looking at you like you're a drug abuser and a drug user. I had drug, a doctor drug se- Yeah, drug-seeking behavior, and they're, they're trained to look for it. I don't mean to cut you short. This whole conversation is going to be heartbreakingly short just because we have so much more to cover. We're going to get to Tommy Sunshine and, and EDM in the next segment, last segment. But, you know, Michael White, you're listening to Brad Burge from MAPS talk about this. I assume in the, in the scholarly end of what you're doing, this is something that's talked about a lot, right? This, this drug is an interesting drug for all of the reasons that you mentioned at the very outset of our conversation, uh, the, the peculiar set of chemical reactions that induces in the brain and in the body. I assume it would be an attractive or interesting component to maybe some, some kind of drug protocol, even like the one V just described. Definitely. And, you know, so what you have to do is you, uh, you have to create a pathway so that there is a, a part or an allowance for use in a way that's not criminalized for clinical research. And then if clinical research shows that things are promising, like, uh, like the direction that things are going with, uh, with medical marijuana, you can then create a scenario where 
you can give drug to the people who have the the most specific uses for that, and you can do it in the right way. And I think that uh, uh, even though it's tangential to the conversation that, that we're having today, I think that the way that Connecticut has set up and is going to be administering the medical marijuana uh, uh, law in the state is, is a good model for some of these types of products that have uses for some people, people who have wasting disorders, people who, uh, you know, have muscle spasticity, people who have, you know, horrible uh, nausea or, you know, increases in intraocular pressure, but not allowing their overall general use. And, and, uh, you know, to create something like that, I think, gives us a template for how things can be created going forward for some of these other products as well. If those products in clinical trials, looking at good quality data, good control data can show that they have effectiveness. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to go back with Tommy Sunshine and Sam Tracy. Talk about sort of the way MDMA is uh, used these days in conjunction with a really probably the dominant pop music form of the moment. about the clinical uses of MDMA, but PMS definitely helps with my LSD. Or maybe I got that backwards. I'll go check with that talking rainbow unicorn robot over there. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me with Garrett Connolly, who came up with the idea. The part of Bill Curry was played by Skrillex. For links, photos, stories, and video of the staff of the Faith Middleton Show dancing for seven straight hours and trying to drink water while they have pacifiers in their mouths, they keep forgetting it's so cute. Go to our website, WNPR.org. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and appeared in our intro. And now, back to Colin. What is EDM? What does it stand for? Uh, it stands for electronic dance music. I don't know, it sounds like it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever taken Molly at an EDM show? And how did it affect your experience? Everything was surreal. You weren't scared of being looked at weird. It just made you feel really free lots of energy, you're always happy. Those drugs pretty much just put you in a state of happiness. Do you think it gives these concerts a bad name? Kind of, yeah. People overdo it and they don't stay hydrated and everything and they end up dying at these festivals and everything. But, I mean, it's all in how you use it. It's all about moderation. It's all about safety. Safety first, always. All right, safety first. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about this spe- uh, specific style of music, you know, EDM, electronic dance music, which really is, I think at this moment, it's fair to say, the dominant style of pop music in America. But it's inextricably wound up with the, the notion, anyway, of using MDMA while you dance, while you attend one of these gigantic festivals. 
<coughs> excuse me, 300,000 people went to the Ultra Music uh, Festival in, in Miami last year. That's how big uh, this gets. So uh, joining us now is Tommy Sunshine, who's right at the center of all this. He's a music producer, journalist, and DJ, uh, knows the scene incredibly well. He is uh, the scene uh, incredibly well. Uh, Tommy Sunshine, you've been listening to a lot of this conversation. Obviously, the kind of music that you perform, produce, and love has has now acquired kind of this um, – I don't know if taint is quite the is the right word, but obviously people are now talking about it very much in connection with the idea of using a, a dangerous drug. Is that fair? Is, is it fair to think of EDM and, and say MDMA in the same breath? I think that they're joined together for ease purposes. And I feel like, you know, it, the, the people that go to these events and that experience this music, the majority of them are going there to experience this music, and they love this music. This is a culture of music lovers. And inevitably, in subculture of any kind, and in a large gathering of any kind, there's always going to be some sort of substance that's going to drive underneath all of that. And that goes rock concerts, you know, football games, it's alcohol. You know, there's always going to be something that's going to weave its way into the equation here. So uh, when disco was king, uh, people were doing lines of coke in bathrooms. Uh, and, and so you're sort of saying, well, th- this is a thing that goes with it. Although I guess when I, what I hear, and I'm, I'm too old and ignorant uh, to know how to evaluate it, is that really there are a lot of people who really feel like they need the drug to listen to ED- EDM. They need the drug. that It's part of the experience to, to be there, to be dancing, to be on the drug is – is intrinsic in a way that, you know, I don't necessarily need pot to listen to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I don't need cocaine to listen to Donna Summer. Uh, um, Once again, is that fair? I mean, I know from just our pre-interviews with you, you're not using MDMA or anything else, right? I'm eight years sober, so I'm, I'm completely on the other side of all of this. But I can tell you that, you know, when you're on a dance floor, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and your eyes are closed, and the baseline hits you in just the right way, there is nothing that needs to be augmented with that for that to make you feel something. I mean, this music in and of itself is emotional music. It's, it's got a tremendous amount of feeling in it and a tremendous amount of passion. And when, when you feel that, strictly from the music, and you hear that in the context of being in a crowd of 100,000 people who are absorbing it all at the same time, you can understand why there would be this interest in an even more heightened state of experience, because it's really a tremendous and incredibly moving thing. Do you feel as though EDM, we're talking to Tommy Sunshine right now, do you feel as though EDM as a genre, as a, as a community, as an artistic community, needs to have a response to this? In other words, it, it, the coverage is starting to emphasize the dangers, the occasional deaths uh, from, from, from drugs at these concerts. And, and it's getting, as I say, a stigma is beginning to, to attach to it a little bit, at least in mass media coverage. Do you guys, do, and there may not be a collective voice for EDM, there probably isn't, but do you feel as though artists need to say something one way or the other about this? Well, I mean, you know, I participated in in a PSA with Cascade and Steve Aoki and a bunch of other, you know, very, very big DJs 
you know, I appeared on the Katie Couric show. I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're, we're all trying to reel this in and, and make it so that, you know, there is a bunch more awareness and understanding. And, and with education comes better choices. And, and I think that that's really important because if you have all the information, which in the Internet age, there's no reason why anyone shouldn't know the entire battery of information that comes along with stepping into, you know, this kind of culture and stepping into those kinds of choices. You can read all about it, and you know what you need to do, and you know what you shouldn't do. And, and you know, it's all out there if you want it. But, uh, you know, we're all really pushing hard for awareness and education because through that, you know, there will be less bad experiences, and the stigma will eventually fade. Let me add uh, Sam Tracy to this conversation. Uh, Sam Tracy, chairman of the board for Students for a Sensible Drug Policy in Washington, D.C. Sam, you hear Tommy Sunshine saying there's no excuse, no reason not to have enough education. There's plenty of uh, information out there. So some people listening might be saying, really, Could, could my kid ever have enough information so that he or she could go to Miami for the Ultra Music Festival, buy something, uh, that will uh, conceivably heighten the experience and, and be safe and be not in danger of winding up in the emergency room. What's your, what's your answer to that question, Sam? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I mean, education is one of the most important things we can be doing. Um, I think a lot of that does get tied in with the regulatory side of things. I mean, the best kind of education is the kind of education that you can get, say, from a, a bottle of alcohol about what percentage alcohol it is or about the warning labels on a prescription drug bottle. So I do think that changing the way that we regulate MDMA is a big part of it. But that aside, uh, just the education about the relative harms of it uh, is incredibly important uh, at concerts and other sorts of events. Uh, one shining example, actually, just recently was um, in, in response to those, uh, those recent deaths that we were ta- you were talking about earlier uh, in New York City and such, um, there was the Tomorrow World Music Festival, which just happened in Georgia recently. Uh, SSDP and another organization called Dance Safe uh, worked hard to provide a lot of uh, education, other sorts of harm reduction things, giving out water and talking with people. Talked to over 10,000 people. And uh, at a concert with over 140,000 attendees, there were no fights, no arrests, and only 17 medical transports during the entire concert, which 17... Yeah, that's unfortunate that those did happen, but that's an incredibly low rate for an event of that size. And that sort of education can be incredibly effective, and we've seen it work. Sam, what can you tell? I mean, at a certain point, you know, we're getting a lot of information and a lot of education here on this show. But at a certain point, if I'm at this uh, concert uh, and I want to do something like this, I'm going to buy a pill probably from somebody I I know, maybe from somebody I don't know. Either way, it's not going to have a label. It's not going to have any kind of information on it. I'm going to put it in my mouth and and swallow it. So how how much education can there be to kind of take me up to that threshold? uh, so that, that I don't wind up as a medical transport or, or as a dead person. What, what can you tell anybody? Yeah, that is difficult, and I think that it is important for us to be doing a lot of education ahead of time, as we were talking about with uh, this show and other sorts of materials. But I think that the ideal situation is really having people at that venue, uh, ideally being able to test those sorts of drugs. A lot of the time, dance safe uh, totally depends on where it is, but they offer drug testing kits that – if we have that sort of regulatory environment in which people 
are in are comfortable bringing their drugs somewhere to be tested so that they know if it is MDMA, what percentage it is, how much it's cut with, it's some completely other drug as we were talking about. I think that that kind of hands-on stuff is invaluable, and it's really too bad that sometimes in, in in the name of safety, people will prevent that sort of testing when really that's the sort of thing that would go the farthest in making sure that no one gets injured or dies at these sorts of events. You know, we're going to go out with a uh, Tommy Sunshine song, but Tommy, uh, you've got about 30 or uh, 40 seconds left here. What, what would you say? To, what would you say to somebody heading towards an EDM event wondering or whether or not to take MDMA? You know, it's a personal choice, and I, I, I fight really strongly for personal choice. And, you know, you, you everyone's life is a different journey, and we all go through different things, and we all deserve a weekend after working hard at what we do. And you just have to, you know, really take a look around and, you know, assess what you're dealing with. And if you think you know, you know, you think you know what you're dealing with and you're going to walk into it with your head held high, then, you know, go ahead. But, you know, you really do have to be aware and you, you have to know that you're making, you're making a choice in the, you know, in the night. And, you know, may, maybe you're not going to get what you think you're going to get, but you, you have to know what you're getting yourself into and you have to know that you're participating in subculture. All right. And, I, hear, I hear the music coming up, Tommy. I think we're out of time. Thanks so much to Tommy Sunshine, Brad Burge, Sam Tracy, Dr. Michael White from uh, UConn School of Pharmacy, Dr. John Halpern from Harvard Medical School. Thanks to you for listening and to Betsy Kaplan for producing. cousin Steve. He said I should introduce myself if I find you. Oh, cool. Nice to meet you. You too. By the way, do you have any Molly on you? Or... Yeah, for 20 bucks. Sold.